to the guys for, for leading us. So my name is Chris, and I am from a little island called the Isle of Man. But before I say any more, I'm going to introduce Carol, my wife. Carol, why don't you come here? Um, and Carol's just going to tell you about our family and our home congregation. Hi. Um, so we are um, family of four, two older two daughters who have got their own families now, and we're very blessed because they live with us on the island with their families, and sort of just two minute walk away, which is wonderful. Um, and we've been on the island for 16 years. So we're originally from the UK. We're in a church of probably the size of this one when it's got its normal numbers, um, uh, which is an evening church in, in Douglas. Um, and we've only just moved there to support the eldership team there. Um, before that, Chris was leading the, the, the other church in Douglas, which was in the morning. Um, but we've handed it over to Jonathan now, and he's, he's leading that um, full guns going. Um, and I love it on the island. It's um, growing not quite to the same extent as Joshua's generation is, but we're definitely growing and going deeper. Um, this last year, it's been a year of knowing um, the freedom of deliverance in your life, of Jesus delivering you, freeing you in many areas. And it's sort of swept through the congregations that we have. And there's still a sense of this happening and people finding the freedom of living more with the Holy Spirit in their lives and the challenges of that and also seeing the freedom of living with the Holy Spirit in their lives. And it's much more tangible rather than Holy Spirit on Sundays. It seems to be more we're living with the Holy Spirit every day of our lives. Um, so, yeah. Thanks, love. Um, we actually celebrated 35 years of marriage last week. So... Uh, it's funny, when I tell people that, most people say Carol deserves a medal. I don't know why that is. but uh, um, Well, what a joy to be with you, and um, thank you for having us and welcoming us here. I, as I said in the prayer meeting, Byron and Leanne, who are basically our Cape Town family, um, they brought us here this time last year when this congregation was, I think, just a gem of an idea, eh? and uh, it's so lovely to come here and find a work being established, and, and I'm sure God's going to use that and, and multiply that, and well done to Mike and Stacy for having the faith to leave the comfort of Baron Leanne's flat and to, to come here and plant, and uh, it's been good because we've been coming maybe 10 years now probably, and we've stayed there every year, and um, we just look forward to coming because they just are family to us. And that's how it should be, isn't it? But it's been great to see Mike and, and Stace from we just peering out of the window as we arrive to now leading a congregation. It's, uh, it's almost uh, as if we've been on that journey with you. But uh, So great to have them and a blessing to have Byron and Leanne. Also great to have Lucas and Annie here. Um, they have put so much into us. We've eaten them out of house and home at times. If, if you haven't experienced it, Lucas cooks the best steak ever. And uh, they're such a blessing to us and, and their children, their wonderful children as well. And, and I do want to honor Annie particularly for keeping in touch with our children, with our daughters. Um, she regularly contacts them and says, how are you doing? And 
um, without being asked. And so we owe them a debt of, of great gratitude and it's lovely to see them flourishing here as well. But enough about our personal stuff, eh? Because it's not about us, it's about Jesus, isn't it? And I, I want to ask you if you can just come with me on a little bit of a journey this morning because the Lord has put the issue of discipleship onto my heart. And we travel around a lot of churches, Carol and I, particularly in Europe, but also further afield. We're going to Canada next month to uh, a new potential partner for, for 412. And one of the things that we find often is that today many churches and many Christians, I, I'm afraid, aren't interested in maturing. They, they want to be entertained and they want to be comfortable, but there isn't an interest or even a hunger, a desire to go deeper into the things of the Lord. And Carol was saying we're, we've been going through this in our home church in Living Hope a lot um, recently. And, and maybe sometimes the distinguishing factor of churches can be their worship or their gifts, their preaching or their building or whatever. But you know, I think we can see in the commission that Jesus gave to the church that really the heart of a healthy church is saints getting deeper into the things of the Lord, getting freer, getting greater freedom and liberty and finding their destiny in Christ. I remember asking Brad Verena, who leads the Oxygen Life Church in Port Elizabeth, some of you will know Brad, what's the vision for your church? And you know, sometimes when you're leading a church, you're looking for that catchy little corporate title. But he said something which really spoke to me, and, and it stuck with me. He said, well, we don't really have a vision other than at the end of the year, everybody who comes through our church knows Jesus more, is more in love with Jesus, is, is serving the church stronger, and is now encouraging others to do the same through their example. And I thought, what a wonderful way to see the church, is that every day, every month, our vision is that you and I are getting stronger in Jesus, more in love with Him, our marriages are better, those of us that are married, and we're discipling others, we're bringing others through. I mean, if you find that in a church, join it. And, and I think it's evident, you know, when you go to Oxygen Life, that that is how they're living. They're living to disciple one another. And, and people matter. And when I was called into full-time ministry, let me check my watch. That's a good idea, isn't it? Yeah. Um, when I was called into full-time ministry, I'd spent over 25 years in, in business. And pretty much the day before I was being called into ministry... I was woken up early in the morning by the Lord, and this doesn't happen to me very often because I love my bed. And um, I was instantly awake, and I felt like the Spirit said to me, get up, go next door. We had a little room at that time next door. I've got something to say to you. And so I did. I, I got into that position of prayer, and suddenly I had a vision. And, and this vision was of a a temple building, you know, with the colonnade, with the sort of pillars all around it, but it was an open temple, an open place, and in the middle there was uh, a raised platform with a, a seat in it. And I found myself in the middle next to this raised platform at the feet of Jesus. And um, I felt the Spirit say to me, have a look at the fringes 
And at the edge of this temple, I could see people walking out and coming in. It was like a crowd of people. But the closer you got to the center, the, the more stable people were. And then I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, what I've called you to is to patrol. I, he didn't use the word patrol, I forget, but to be at that fringe area and to catch those that are leaving and to help bring in those that are coming and, you know, to be in that fringe part of this building. And then when you get tired, because it's going to be tiring, then you can come back to the center, sit at my feet, and get refreshed. You see that, that picture? And, and I felt in that moment that I was being called really to disciple, to, to be someone who was pastoral, who noticed those that were leaving and didn't just let them go. We don't just let them slide away. But also to, to be with those that were just fresh and to help them come deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and if I put it in simple terms, I felt like the Lord was saying to me, you know, people matter. Every single one matters to me. Every single one is part of my heart, you know, and, and see them through my eyes and, and love them. And now I have not lived up to that <laughs> as much as I would like. But, you know, I think that is a picture of what Jesus gave us to do. If we look at Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and you will know this passage very well. Then Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what is a disciple? Well, the first thing to say is that the disciples, when Jesus said this to them, they knew very well what he was saying. When he said, meet me, he said, meet me in Galilee, they knew that because it was a special place to them where Jesus had shown them how to disciple because he had discipled them. And going to Galilee was almost like a prophetic picture that Jesus gave them to return to the place where he discipled them, where they'd shared time together. And this thing of make disciples, it uses language which is a task. In, in fact, you could almost translate it literally say, well, you go and you disciple others. He, he was giving them, commissioning them a task to go and disciple others. And they knew what he meant because they'd shared meals with him. They had been encouraged by him, challenged by him. He'd showed them how to live and to serve and how to love those on the fringes of society, the outcasts. And he'd even given them the opportunity to, to minister. You remember sending them out. They, they knew how they had been discipled. So receiving this commission was not fresh news to them in many ways. And he called them back to that place where they'd learned and then commissioned them to go and do it. And, and they also knew because it was a Jewish concept, you, you know this stuff, you know, this Jewish concept of disciples, of rabbis, were studied them and imitated them. Now, Jesus discipled very differently to the rabbis, but they knew this concept of go and do what I have done. And do it to others. In, in, in fact, the semi-literal meaning of discipling means going behind. Actually going in the footsteps of. 
So this commission on us is to do what Jesus did to his disciples, and then they did to the church. Makes sense. Yeah. You know, I, I used to be a tennis player. Um, not a particularly good one, but I used to enjoy playing tennis. And when I was young, I was glad to hear Mike talk about the generations. That, that made me feel very at home, you know. Um, a refiree. Yeah, that's what I am. And uh, when I was young and I was taught to play tennis, I was coached. And we were coached to hit the ball like this on the backhand. One hand on the racket. And everyone played that way. You know, the, the professionals all the way down. And then along came a chap called Bjorn Borg, who I was lucky enough to see play in the flesh. And he put two hands on the racket, defying everything that everyone had been taught. And there was another guy actually called Jimmy Connors, some of you might remember, um, who also put two hands on the racket. And he became number one in the world, Borg. And he won Wimbledon multiple times. Now, today, it was quite interesting because just recently they've had the, U the U.S. Open. Those of you that don't like tennis, don't clock out here. There's a point to this. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I had a look. The two finalists were a, a chap called Daniel Medvedev and a chap you might have heard of called Djokovic. Now, both of them had two hands on the racket for their backhand. And if you go to the semifinals, where there's four, and the quarterfinals, where there was eight players, all eight players played with two hands on the racket. Bjorn Borg started a revolution, and he has been the disciple. <laughs> he's discipled tennis. He's changed everything because people saw what he was doing and imitated it. And uh, in a way, that's what we've got to be. Each of us have got to be an example so that the younger generations and those younger in the faith, those in that picture of the colonnade just coming through, can look at us and say, that's how to follow Jesus. That's how to follow Jesus. And as we lead them in, in example, they are going to get stronger and deeper in the faith because they're doing things the way that we are doing them. And it's not just... Adults, it's children, you know that. You know, the way you worship, your children are going to worship that way. And so we're setting examples all the time. But it's more than just setting an example because discipling is nurturing. It's, it's more of an experience thing than just a telling thing. You know the story of the pig and the chicken? You, Lucas will because he's... he's He's been a businessman as well. I, imagine the church is a breakfast, and you're either a chicken or a pig. Now, what does the chicken contribute to the breakfast? An egg. So the chicken just makes a contribution. He, he leaves his egg, and then he gets back to, or she gets back to, to life. What does the pig do? The pig gives everything, right? <laughs> The pig gives his life to this cause, to this breakfast. And in the church, we need pigs, not chickens. We, we don't need people to come and make a contribution and then get on, uh, on with their lives. We need people that are going to give their lives to the church. And the only way we're going to get to that is through effective discipling. So who wants to be a pig? <laughs> And we see, okay, so 
you, you, you understand where, where I've started here with discipleship. But what I felt to, to share with you guys today is how can we create a culture among us in a church of discipleship? So not necessarily how to do it, a model of do it, but how can we build into us a culture where discipleship is in our DNA? It's part of our um, life as a community. And when you establish a, a plant like this, you, you have an opportunity to build into your foundations a culture which new people are going to be added to and built on. And it's actually a real privilege because you can establish foundational things which are going to be strong for you to build on. And one of those things is a strong culture of discipleship. And we can look at the Apostle Paul because we know Paul for his teaching and his preaching. But you know, if you read the book of Acts and the epistles, Paul names 27 people that traveled with him. He, he took people with him. He had a culture of discipling. Where, in fact, at times he he's, gives the impression of being quite lonely because he wants people with him. And he's taking these 27 people all around him. For him, discipling was a way of life. And it should be for us. And it's, there are lots of manuals about how to disciple. But it's more a, a lifestyle that we're after. And as 412 churches, we're, we're not about just big gifts on the platform. It, it's called 412 because we're about releasing the saints into ministry, into doing the work of the ministry. So how can we build a culture of discipleship? Well, we're going to focus in on a letter today, the letter that Paul wrote to someone called Philemon or Philemon if you prefer. And, and what we're going to do, I think we're going to read the whole letter together. Eh? Can, can you open your Bibles to, to Philemon if you, if you have it? Otherwise, I have got it up on the screen here and uh, we can read it quickly together. It's not many verses, but receive it as a letter. So Paul is writing a letter to someone that he discipled, someone that he um, converted to the with the gospel and is now part of a church that meets in his home. And he writes this, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. And now he's beginning to butter him up. Do you use that phrase, buttering up? He's, he's softening him up because in a minute he's going to ask him to do something that's going to cost him. So he says, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, has re have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. It's actually a wonderful testimony. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ. You see, if you're a leader... You have to understand how to do this when you're asking someone to do something. I could command you to do this, but actually, I don't want to do that because I want you to receive it 
in your heart out of love. It's called the love sandwich, you know? Um, and he even says, and look, I'm old. That's something I'm increasingly using in my ministry. Look, help me out here because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite old. But it, it's a beautiful um, picture of how much Paul loves this man. Now, here's the ask. That I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Onesimus was a runaway slave. I am sending him as my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I'll pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And then he says, one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. And then there's the greetings that, that he sends, puts at the end of this letter. It's an amazing letter, isn't it? Because what you have here is you have a real personal example of discipleship. What you have is a sullen, rebellious, and implied in here is a lazy, runaway slave. Now, it's not about slavery. Paul, in fact, in 1 Timothy 1 and 10, um, condemns slavery. But what has happened is this chap, Onesimus, who was part of Philemon's household, has run away. He's rebellious and lazy, and somehow he's come into Paul's world, the Apostle Paul, while he's in prison, and he's become a convert of Jesus Christ, and now he is useful to Paul, and Paul is sending him back to where he came from, and he's writing ahead of him arriving to the owner, the former owner of the slave, Philemon, to say, receive him as if he was from me directly. And in fact, it's a play on words because the word Onesimus means useful. So he left useless, and now I'm sending him back useful. No longer as a slave, but as a brother. And isn't it amazing that perhaps the most incredible apostle in the New Testament takes time to do this for someone who is a nobody in the empire? This is, this is the man who wrote most of the New Testament and that we follow today. And yet in the scripture, there's just a personal little letter that he wrote about this one slave called Onesimus. And I, I think there's some great lessons for us in our church culture here. And I'm going to give us just three quick ones. And the first is, if we're going to have a culture of discipleship, we need to see potential in everyone. Everyone who comes through that door, we need to see that there is God's gold somewhere in them. 
And, and often people come into the church so broken. And if you're like me, you can sometimes jump to conclusions about what you're seeing. But Paul doesn't do that. In verse 10 and 11, he says, to the, he says this of this letter. He says, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. Wow, my son. This outcast, this runaway has arrived and he has become my son. You, you see that? I heard the story of uh, a pastor, Jim Simbola. Anybody come across Jim Simbola? He, he's actually the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in New York. And they have a lot of homeless people in that area. And they have protocols in the church about how to deal with them when they come in and they want money. Because they come into the church and they can't just hand out money, so they have protocols. And Jim Simler had preached three times that Sunday. He'd finished. Ministry was happening. He was tired. He was just sitting on the stage. And this homeless man locked eyes with him and began to walk towards him. And he was thinking, oh, no. I just want to go home, put my feet up, have my coffee, and, and rest. I, I just can't be bothered to go through all these protocols. So um, this man came, and as he came closer, there was a smell because he'd been on the streets and hadn't washed. His clothes were filthy, and there was a stench around him. So he thought, right, I'm just going to abandon the protocols, and he got out $20 and put it towards this man. But as this man came towards him, he looked at him, and he said to him, I don't want your money. I want this Jesus that you're talking about. Whoa, and the conviction came upon him in that moment. And he just broke down. He led, this homeless man is called David, led him to Christ and hugged him. And he says, it's a beautiful picture because he says in that moment, I don't know who needed the other one more. Because he felt the Lord say to him, See that smell? If you can't abide that smell, I can't use you in the kingdom. And that homeless chap actually eventually became staff in, in the church. Um, you can listen to the story yourself. But as I was listening to him speaking, I was thinking, Chris, how often do I presume on someone? And why am I not just thinking, how can I dig out this gold in them to use them for the Lord? You know, do we have this culture of grace? We knew, uh, Lucas may remember him, we had a pastor called Rick Vazette. Do you remember Rick coming to us? And he said once, in our church, we believe there's a 10 out of 10 in everybody. And our job is to find that 10 out of 10. Jesus looked at a bunch of uneducated, argumentative fishermen, terrorists, fraudulent tax collectors, and he said, follow me and I'll make you fisher fishers of men. He, he didn't pick the educated ones, the obvious ones, the ones that could play the guitar, you know, uh, the, the ones that immediately were going to look useful. Instead, he, he picked the ones that in society's eyes were not useful, and he turned them into something that was going to, says in the book of Acts, 
They knew that these men had been with Jesus. And they turned the world upside down. Now, can I tell you, there's potential in you to turn the world upside down. But we as a church have to be the the people that are looking for that potential. And it doesn't only have to come from the front. How can I encourage you? How can I help you grow in your gifts? We recently, when we left the one congregation to move to another congregation, our little community group said, oh, can we pray for you guys? And uh, it it was quite a nice moment because they all decided they wanted to say something about us. Um, And I can't remember much about what they said. But one thing I remember, one of the guys said, he was quite new to the church, and and he said, I just want to say, Chris, you've taught me how to see the good in people, the best in people. When I was judging them, you always said, oh yeah, but there's this about them. And I thanked him because that's what I want to be like. I mean, I don't think I always am, but that's what I want to be like. I want to be someone who is always looking to see how someone can fulfill their potential in Christ. And is that what we want? Is, Is that what we want? A church where people are fulfilling their potential in Christ. Let me give you just a few keys. Sorry, it's quite practical this morning, but let me just give you a few keys about how we can unlock this culture among ourselves. And, and the first thing is, you know, in 1 Peter 4 verse 10, it says, each has been given a gift in order to serve. So we have to take an interest in other people. I was taught as a young man by the first pastor that I Um, in a little church plant, actually, that I served under. He said, be interested before you're interesting. Two ears, one mouth. Use them in that proportion. And I've always remembered that. Be interested before you're interesting. So when you encounter someone, um, the natural human response is, if, if I say to Mike, oh, how's your week been? And he tells me about his work. My natural mind is starting to think of things that I could say about my week. That's the natural bridge. But um, the Holy Spirit teaches us actually to go a little bit deeper in asking questions. And uh, I've met people who are fantastic disciples and they just have the ability to be interested in people. And it's actually a a supernatural thing because if we're not interested, we don't find the stories. In our community group, we were talking about people's stories. And this lady, um, we began to ask her about our experience. And suddenly it popped out that she'd taken the gospel to villages in Kenya. And that had been how she'd spent her time. And I saw her as an accountant because she joined the church. And, oh, what do you do for work? Oh, I'm an accountant. Okay, she's an accountant. Box ticked. I'll put her in the accountant box. But then, as you ask deeper questions, out came this this amazing gift that she'd been and spread the gospel. There was another guy, same thing. Um, Oh, I work in Tesco's, which is a supermarket. Oh, great, okay, you're a supermarket worker. And where are you from? I'm from Nigeria. Okay, right, a Nigerian supermarket worker. I've got you ticked in my... my (laughs) And then he began to share about how his father had kicked him out of his home because of his faith. And then many years later, he was preaching to a thousand youth. And his father came to listen to him preach, unknown to him. 
And when he did the altar call, his father responded to the gospel. Depth in that guy. Depth in that guy. That means when we find someone else whose father or family have abandoned them for the gospel, we can say, hey, meet this guy. This is Yemi. He, he can walk alongside you. Or, you know, you meet an accountant who's struggling in, in work. Well, meet Leah because she's an accountant, but she's carrying the gospel everywhere she goes. And we can connect people to those that bring them life, but we've got to take an interest. Be interested before interesting. Does that make sense? You know, that's why we do, when we raise leaders up, we do a questionnaire because we want to go deep in their lives and find out not just if there's a problem, but if there's gold that we haven't uncovered yet. Secondly, don't do life alone. We're not intended to be lone rangers in, in the gospel. My wife, she calls it on the way discipling. So when she's going running or something like that, she's, she's actually a really annoying person to run with. Because when we finish the run, it's not about what was your time? What was your personal best? It was who have you spoken to? We've had random, this is true, we, we went on the park run and we ended up taking this random Australian guy who was over for the motorbike racing back to our house to have a shower and to give him breakfast because he couldn't get back to his campsite, all because she had opened up a conversation on the park run. Be interested. Don't do life alone. Our home, Lucas and Annie were a great example of this. When, when we were with them, their home was always full of people. And as you have people in your home, then you find out about them. You, you, the discipling happens in a, in a very natural way. We have interns. You, do you have interns? You have interns in Josh Jenna. Eh? We have interns, and, and they live in our, we deliberately put them in families, in homes, because that's where they grow. We could put them in a, you know, a B&B, or they could all be in one house together, but rather put them in a family because they grow. I remember talking to one of our interns, one of the lads, just become a deacon, praise the Lord, but he was so messy. His room was a tip, and he used to disappear, and Carol would um, wash the bed sheets and put them there, and instead of putting them on the bed, he would sleep on the the mattress and leave the bed sheets off. So Carol was getting increasingly frustrating, and as the father in the home, I, I had the responsibility of having the Jesus chat, you know, the come to Jesus chat. And I sat down this young man in our, our living room, and I said to him, I won't give you his name, it's not fair, but I said to him, you know what, these next 10 minutes could be the most important 10 minutes of your life. Because one day, you might have a wife, and I'm telling you, if you live the way you do now, she's not going to last that long. <laughs> and, and bless him, he, well, after I said, these next 10 minutes could be the most important ones of your life, he said, should I take notes? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I said, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> and, and now he's married, and uh, they've just become deacons, and uh, he's, a, he's a beautiful young man, actually. And, uh, but, you know, I was discipling him. In, in the home, he, it, it wasn't, you know, let's have a discipleship conversation. It was, you're living among us. Let, let's talk about how you can grow in your love for Christ. And, and it's great to have that. My, our children grew up 
and uh, they grew, grew up with the sound of tongues, you know, speaking in tongues, really loud coming from our kitchen, because Carol has a great gift for releasing people in the, the gift of speaking in tongues, and if you would like that, she would surely pray for you um, today, but um, one of the ways she does it is she says, I'm going to pray louder than you. So no matter how loud you pray, I'm going to pray louder than you, just to sort of take away the embarrassment of, of it and of getting started. And so I'd be in the living room with our daughters playing, and they could hear from the kitchen this really loud speaking in tongues, because it was happening in the house. But have people through your home. You know, Mike was talking about, if you haven't come around for a meal yet, we're not doing our job. Well, that's because that's where we're going to get discipled. And then don't expect perfection. Accept mistakes easily. Amen? Risk on competence, but not on character. I love how Paul was willing to risk his own reputation and cost for, for Onesimus. He says, welcome him as you would welcome me. And if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. So this apostle was sending this letter saying, this I'm actually going to risk my reputation because if he doesn't come back to you, if he's done anything wrong, put it on my account. Is that how we're living? Is, you know, we had a guy who had to go to prison because of something he'd done before he came to the church. And while he was in prison, one of the guys in the church, because he was about to lose his house, said, no, I'm going to pay the rent for the whole term of his prison sentence, so that when he comes out, he has a home to go to. Wow. That's, charge it to my account. Charge it to my account. I want to preserve this man. And when he came out, the same guy was waiting at the prison doors with his car to give him a lift back to his home. But that's a great example. Will we risk or assume? I wonder, is there anyone you've given up on? You know, sometimes we give up on people, don't we? We think, oh, too far gone. Maybe the Lord's just dropping names and it's time to contact them and say, you know, missed you. We've been missing you. Okay, I need to speed up. So the first thing is, you know, take an interest in people. Don't do life alone. You know, see potential in everyone. But the second thing is, there's actually a responsibility on us to be discipled. Think, think about this. Um, Paul says in verse 12, 13, I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to have keep him. Now, Onesimus, when he went back, if you were a runaway slave, the appropriate punishment when you returned was crucifixion. And if the master was merciful, the minimum was to brand the letter F on your forehead which stood for fugitivus, which is fugitive. So to mark you out as a runaway, you were branded. And that was the best solution because the other one was crucifixion. So Philemon, he was within his rights when this um, guy returned to crucify, have him crucified or to brand him. So Onesimus was not going back without risk. So we sometimes don't see it from his side. From his side, he'd found himself useful now working with Paul. And Im imagine the conversation where Paul sits down with him one day and he says, you know what, Onesimus, 
it's time for you to go back. Imagine how he would have felt. But Paul, I'm going to be killed if I go back. I know my son, but I'm going to send a letter. Are you sure, Paul? What, what about 10 soldiers? That might be better. No, I'm going to write a letter. But, but how will you know it will get there safely? <laughs> oh, he was risking everything. And he could, I guess, have gone and then run away. But Paul was confident that his discipling had gone so deep that Onesimus was willing to risk everything because of Paul's say-so and of what Christ has done in his heart. That took a lot of courage, a lot of strength, but it also shows the journey of discipleship that he'd been on and where he was now. And, and it's not un, out of the ordinary in the gospel. Think about Paul himself. He'd lost everything, status. He'd been beaten multiple times, shipwrecked. Talks about all the things he'd, he'd been through, how he'd had poverty where they'd had nothing. He'd given up everything to follow Jesus. And it's true of the others as well, of Peter, gave up family, career, security, their very life. So, so when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians and he says, follow me as I follow Christ, they've seen what following Christ actually cost him. It's not just as simple as read the Bible as much as I do, worship the way I do. No, Follow me as I lay down everything to follow Jesus. It's a call of sacrifice. And Paul puts it into his letter to the Philippians when he talks about how Jesus himself gave up glory for poverty, gave up omnipotence, gave up um, everything in heaven for human flesh. And, and don't forget, Jesus is human flesh forever. Death on a cross emptied of self-interest to being exalted by God. Our greatest role model in discipleship is Jesus himself because it cost him so much to die for us. And then Paul's coming in saying, follow me in that way. And, and, and he even speaks of the Macedonian Christians. He says, they gave themselves in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 5, by God's grace to God and then by God's grace to us. They gave themselves. Onesimus was giving himself. And we have to be those in a culture of discipleship who are giving ourselves. I feel for, you know, over my 43 years of being a Christian, I've served as a number two often, serving uh, other men. And, and by giving myself to them, it's led me into so much more. It's led me into places that I could never have seen just by if I did it my way. And, and that's true for you. You know, if you can give yourselves into the church to be discipled, you're going to be led into greater freedom, greater fruit. The reward is there. The cost is there, but the reward is also there. You know, when you see people who um, were broken and now have been redeemed through giving themselves into the church and, and are now flowing in the Spirit and on fire for Jesus and going to the nations. It costs to do that, but the reward is eternal. And this is for every generation. You know, it's not just young people. E even this last week, I, I 
went to someone, I said, pray with me, there's something in my life, and he took me so deep into my, my past, but coming out of it was greater freedom, and, and it was quite embarrassing, really, going to this guy and saying, well, you know, I'm an elder and a pastor, but I'm struggling, um, but it was worth it. Will you open up your life? Because you've got an invitation to service and suffering, but also to salvation and reward. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. And Jesus actually said, conform wholly to my example in Matthew 16, 24. Deny yourself, lose sight of, forget yourself. Conform wholly to my example if living and if need be in discipling. But a culture of discipleship, it requires accountability. It requires us to be accountable. To be truly discipled in the image of Christ means to allow people to speak into our lives. That's how a culture is, is built, to, to actually allow people to say and to go to them and say, can you speak into my life? Can I'm going to open, don't, I mean, don't do it to the man on the street corner, you know, do it to someone in, in the church who, who you trust, but, you know, can you speak into my life? Tell me how I can grow in Christ. And you know, there's some areas in our lives, they're the don't go there areas. You know what they are? I remember someone uh, came to the pastor, he preached on money that morning and one of the guys came to him and said pastor this morning you stopped teaching and you started meddling you start teaching on money and things manifest you start teaching on parenting and things manifest <laughs> don't touch my little idols I was actually thinking about the elders serving in our church at the moment. And uh, when, when I thought about the conversations that we'd had, there were things about their health, how they were living. Were you, are you living healthily? Because you've got to be fit for the kingdom. Actually, physical health is of some benefit. So if you want to go to the nations, you've got to be fit to go. Parenting, you have to have conversations. Your, your children are small terrorists. <laughs> how, how, can we, how can we help you, you know? We've recently been helping a couple in eldership in, in marriage. I mean, that's a difficult one, isn't it? To say, you know, there's some tensions here, but can you help us? And we, we've seen them come through so beautifully. Money, you know, you're terrible with your money. <laughs> You know, are you stewarding faithfully because it says you're not a lover of money. That's a qualification. Are things manifesting? I, I hope not. But, uh, you know, we can't afford to have no-go areas in our lives. It's not because the leaders want to interfere and be nosy, but it's because Jesus wants to set us free. And what is in the darkness is difficult to be healed, but what is open leads to wholeness and usefulness. So here's the picture of a culture of discipleship. The first is there's potential in everyone. God has planted something unique, purposed in you. And being a disciple, it doesn't mean being, but does mean, but it's not just being loved and cared for. It's actually about being made useful. 
That's what Onesimus, what Paul showed in Onesimus, is, is if we're going to be discipled, it's about being made useful to the kingdom, useful to Jesus in some way. So where's your gift? And if you don't know, ask the guys, can you help me explore where my gift is, where I can serve, where I belong in this place? Because there is a place for everybody. And then secondly, we're going to give ourselves and I'm going to finish here. Gosh, I need to finish. Live in the power of Jesus. If we just try harder, it's going to kill us. I love, this is where the bed story comes up. <laughs> Yesterday, Anneli has got a new bed. And uh, she's hired this industrial strength hoover, vacuum thing, to clean the bed. And uh, she came into Byron's kitchen sweating and as if she'd just been on a 10-mile run. I'm exaggerating now. But, but she said, it's just like I've had a workout. This is a workout. Because she'd done half the bed, just half the bed, and had been ramming this thing down and, you know, getting the muscles working, pressing this vacuum down onto the bed to, to get it clean. And it had come up pretty well. Yeah. But she was working so hard. And then later she came and she'd realized this thing had a power that didn't need you to add your power. <laughs> Just run it gently over the bed, and it has a, suck, a, a vacuuming power that is industrial strength. And the second half was a lot easier than the first half, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and sometimes that's what we're like because we're trying so hard and hard and hard to, to get better, but we're doing it in our own strength. And the promise of, uh, of the Spirit is that we can do it in His power. It's transformational power. And Philemon, this letter, is really a picture of the gospel in its entirety. Because we're all runaway slaves in one form or another. Rebellious because we're rebellious against God. And then when we come to Christ, we become useful. The Holy Spirit is given to us. And this picture is actually a picture of spirit-led transformation. And that's what a culture of discipleship is. It, it's not, I'm picking on you a lot here. Yeah. It's not try harder. Come on, man. Could you do better? We have to give ourselves and open ourselves up. But it's also if we're flowing in the Spirit, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says of his own transformation in the book of Romans, I'm, I'm desperate. What a wretched man I am. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. But then the very next part of, of the book of Romans is be led by the Spirit. There's no condemnation. I'm empowered. My life is spirit-led. The flesh leads to death, but the spirit leads to life. So if we want to be discipled, if we come and we are filled with the power of Jesus Christ. And this is where I want to land it now. Maybe Mike is just gone. Eh? <laughs> we can just pray. But can you begin to just ask the Lord what he's saying to you this morning? We need a culture of discipleship in our churches. But we need the gospel to lead us. Jesus doesn't call us to pick up traditions, to learn about traditions and church practices. 
but to share in his authority in the future of the kingdom. As we're discipled, we're being discipled to be anointed with the power of the Spirit, to unlock everything that he, he gives us. Jesus said to the disciples themselves, he said, don't just go out with what you've learned from me, but wait in Acts 1. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. His discipleship showed them how to live under the anointing of the power of God. And that is how we live in a culture of discipleship in the church, is we're coming in the power of the Spirit. You know, every morning, every meeting that we're coming in, even on church on a Sunday, if we're going to be useful, we're filled with the Spirit. And Philemon is a picture of this Spirit-filled transformation. The, the flesh kills, but if the Spirit put you to death, your body will live. You'll live in the power of the Spirit. And a discipleship culture is a Spirit-led obedience to the Word of God. Empowered obedience. I love how this is not such a good picture, but I love here that when you have load shedding, or as Carol calls it, shed loading, Load shedding, and, and the guys were saying that um, when the power comes back on, there's a surge of power, and it's even starting fires, as, and you've got to have these special, what do they call them? Plugs, surge. But you know, that's what it's like as followers of Jesus. When the power comes on, it's a surge, and it starts fires. And I believe even today, there's a surge. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, there's a surge of power, and you could become a disciple who's starting fires, just like digging that well. And, and my heart is for our churches to be doing it with a surge of power. You know, sometimes it's hard work, but we don't just want to burn each other out. Duncan Campbell, who was the architect of the revival in the Hebrides in northern Scotland, he said this, unless there is a demonstration of the supernatural in the midst of men, unless we're moved up into the realm of the divine, we shall soon find ourselves caught up in a counterfeit movement and a movement that goes under the name of evangelism. There's much in the church today that is counterfeit. So we need to hold on to the divine, to the transformation that comes with that, an empowered obedience, not a textbook discipling, but a spirit-led discipling. Why don't we just, for a moment, just take a moment to respond.